The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. I am Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo and Grable Associates. I have my haters out there. I have my enemies out there. And enemies come in different shapes and sizes. And a very powerful man taught me that. Jimmy Jackson. And tonight, I'm going to try to honor Jimmy Jackson. You may not know who that is. But we'll talk about it. And I realized of so many of the people have issues with me. I'm different in the professional genre. I guess I'm different in the personal genre. There's a detachment, right? And I realize I can be someone's best friend in the world, but I don't necessarily turn to them for that type of support when shit hits the fan. And that goes back to Ducktown. And what I'm going to do for a while is discuss different people of Ducktown. And tonight, Jimmy Jackson really hit hard. Um, It's been a lot going on in my life. And it's weird. On the road to success, you often lose sight of people. Who helped build that bridge for you. And Jimmy Jackson was somebody I definitely owe a debt of gratitude to. Now, when we talk about Ducktown in the 90s. I could say this. Unadulterated truth. A lot of people have a problem with me. Could not have survived a week in Ducktown. And I think everybody in their life needs to get their ass kicked. Physically and emotionally. It builds character. And when you lived on this world for four decades and you've never had your heart ripped out or your body pummeled, you get a false sense of who you are. And Ducktown certainly told us a lot about life. And I will say to the people that live there, the ones that are still alive, we have this exterior about us that was taught to us through this concept of learned behavior. And when you go through that hardened shell, when you're dealing with that shit, it's really powerful that Ducktown can still exist within you. Because when I think of Ducktown, you think of Pitney Village. You think of the White House sub shop, you think of Trump Plaza, you think of St. Michael's, 
church, you think of the Alki, and you think of all these things that existed there. And they were your landmarks. And there was this violence and this brutality. And anybody that lived next to Pitney Village can tell you just how brutal that was. And what you're looking to do when you live in an environment like that. You're looking to escape. And escaping is so much easier said than done. But I want to say a few things tonight before I get into the great man who was Jimmy Jackson. Nobody should be and or stay in a relationship where they are not valued. Nobody should feel they are not good enough for somebody else. And I think sometimes in life, whether we admit or deny it, we're all looking for acceptance. And the people that really care about you, and they're few, my Uncle Sam always said, if there's five people in this world that truly give a shit about you, you are a very lucky person. You have three or four more than most. Maybe five more than most. But relationships can bring you down. They really can. And uh, Jimmy Jacks is a man who had, he got hurt a lot in relationships. But let me tell you about who he was. And what you learn about people the great ones. When I say the great ones, they may not be the most educated. They may not be the ones with seven figures in the bank account. But they are the ones that want to impart knowledge on you. They are the ones that want you to learn from their mistakes. They're the ones that want to protect you from the chaos they may have endured. And that's Jimmy Jackson. In my old neighborhood, there was a dry cleaning place called Formica Cleaners. And it was right down the block on Mississippi and Atlantic Avenue. And this is where you caught the bus. Because you went to school at St. James, and you caught the bus on Mississippi and Atlantic Avenue. And while waiting for the bus, I got to meet Jimmy Jackson. Jimmy Jackson was an older black man. He knew me from the time I was real little, because my mom used to take me on a stroll around the block when the neighborhood was nicer. And he's somebody who really just took an interest in me. Like, he saw something in me at a very young age. And here was this hardworking man who was irrelevant to most of the world. But my God, did Jimmy teach you about life everybody in their journey should have a jimmy jackson i'm lucky i had the jimmy jackson jimmy taught me that things were temporary jimmy taught me the importance of reading he used to say to me billy I want you to read a lot every day. It's going to separate you from people because people don't like reading. And if you could like it and embrace it, it's going to help you down the line. 
that was pretty powerful to an eight-year-old. And when the teachers at St. James didn't like you and the priest didn't like you, here was this man that was telling you, hey, it's going to be okay. Outwork him. And while he may not have been a success in Google Trends of today, if you would, this is a man that worked 12 hours a day, six days a week, and he worked his ass off. And I had so much admiration for him. I would see the Margate kids in high school just be given things, and I'd watch this man grind away. And it taught me about life. It taught me that just because you're on third base doesn't mean you hit a triple. That's a scene from the Bronx is Burning. But Jimmy taught me things, and he watched this little kid grow up. And as I changed and I got older, Jimmy would teach me about the ways of the world. And eventually, we would have this bond. I looked at him like an uncle figure. I would ask him for advice, and he would listen. He didn't have to. In eighth grade, I got in a fight with this kid named Mike Chait. And Mike Chait won the fight. And if you don't believe me, ask Mike Chait about it. He got a lot of ammunition out of that. Mike Chait was a nobody. Little ugly guy. He was sort of a bully, but he was a nobody. But he got in a fight with me at Ace at uh, St. James. Now, after eighth grade, I'm going to AC High because mom can't afford me to send the whole can't afford to send me the Holy Spirit, and I'm about to be thrown in there with the baddest ass Atlantic City kids, and I'm depressed about this Mike Chait thing. And Jimmy was concerned. Jimmy told me, hey, don't worry about this asshole Mike Chait. You're about to get a street lesson in life. Because you got to walk or take a jitney to school every day, and you're a white kid, you got to go home this way. And I'm worried about you. And Jimmy would take time and teach me how to fight. A street fight. He taught me how to choke someone. He taught me how to hit someone behind the right ear. He taught me how to throw an elbow. He taught me how to survive. And we'd get to the point where the Mike Chates were kind of a joke, and I was put in there with the gangbangers. I was never going to be a great fighter. But Jimmy helped me survive. And he used to tell me, Billy, after you survive, you keep reading. When your homework is done, read more. Jimmy was always sad. He had a sadness about him. And one day, as he's teaching me to throw an elbow just right, I asked him, what happened? You're a smart man. You're a good man. But I always sense that you're depressed. He told me about life and love that day. I'm a 15-year-old kid, and I'm in a war zone, and I'm just trying to survive. And Jimmy told me how he was in love with this woman, and she was a white woman. And back then, that was a big no-no. And she loved him, but her family would never let that be. 
and being the good man that he was, he just walked away. And this became a metaphor for Jenny. He would walk away for his own happiness to make others happier content. And he told me about the day that she got married at St. Michael's Church, which was a block away from where he worked. And I said to Jim, why are you working here so close to the place that brought you so much pain? And he said, it's a decent paying job. And even though I didn't end up with her and it hurt when she got married, that was the church we were going to get married at. And I still feel some kind of closeness and connection to her. And here's this tough, big black man in the 90s who's teaching this little white kid how to survive in the ghetto and tell me about the lost love of his life. And he looked at me and he said, Billy, I want you to remember something. I don't want you to ever love somebody that much. Because when you do, you lose yourself. Because be detached. Remember something. The person who cares the least in the relationship is the one with the power. Now I'm 15. And I'm watching this man who's kind of like a protector. Who's teaching me the ways of the world teaching me about life and he's laying some street knowledge on me and um I don't know if I could co-sign everything he taught me but he taught me survival techniques and at some point in life you're going to need survival techniques and the sad part is and this reminds me of one of my enemies right now you don't realize you need them because you've never been up to your neck in water. But I promise you, one day, that shit will be there when you can't breathe. And the danger of going against somebody who's lived in that is they could adapt. And I want you to remember something, sir. And I thank Jimmy Jackson for this. I could have lived a lifetime where you grew up. You could not last it five days where the fuck I grew up. And some days I'm bitter about Ducktown. And some days I am eternally grateful. Jimmy taught me how to fight. Jimmy taught me to protect myself in the ways of love. Jimmy taught me how to survive. And this brilliant man who went unnoticed by the world, looked at me as a nephew type. We should all be so lucky. When I moved to Ventnor at 19, you weren't in the old neighborhood anymore, obviously. And I would go back now and then to see him, or when I'd be working out the Alki to see him, but it wasn't the same. And I think it's tragic how geography can play such a role in losing people we love and people we owe and people we respect. But it does. And as I was evolving, I would tell Jimmy when I graduated from college and the tears in his eyes and how 
he knew that he played a role in helping me escape. Even though he was still there. And let me tell you about love. Whether it's a male-female relationship or a friendship or like a brother or a kindred. Love is when you want someone to advance to their dreams even if you can't advance yourself. Misery loves company. But what's unique about people is the ones that may be stuck in their own misery but don't want you to be miserable. That's rare. That's worth more than gold and Bitcoin, let me just tell you. And that was Jimmy Jackson. Um, my second term of law school, I went back to see him, and he had passed away. And I could just tell you, quite often, when I'm in the midst of hell, and my to-do list today was enough to choke a horse. Case after case after case, you're trying to problem solve and this and that. And I look at Jimmy, I could like see him right there in the office saying, Billy, outthink him. Read more than them. Everything's going to be okay. And sometimes the most valuable lessons in life, or I should say the most valuable gifts, come without a price tag. So Jimmy, if you're watching this, rest in peace, my friend. I miss you. And when I decided to start talking about people from Ducktown, you were the first one that came to mind. Because some of these stories that are going to come out are not going to be pleasant. They're going to be truthful. And I decided if it's my podcast, I can do whatever the hell I want. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. Today, I'm going to talk about concepts of religion and politics and how that played such a big role in Ducktown. So... You know, before I start, we'll, we'll start with current day, because I got asked some questions about me as a prosecutor, how I prosecute cases, and some of you guys know I do some quasi-prosecutorial work for the Department of Health and Human Services in Lenaway, which has been a very interesting experience, and I know some people about me running for AG as a Republican candidate, and I don't think that's going to happen for a number of reasons, but let me explain my theory on that when i say number of reasons i mean money it's not enough money but here's my theory on prosecutions just so we're clear and we'll jump back to the Ducktown days number one if somebody passes a solid private polygraph i will dismiss a case and when i say solid private polygraph i mean an Andrew Longusky polygraph. I mean a Sean Lockridge polygraph. I mean a Neil Myers polygraph. And I'll be clear, I think Longusky is the best in the state. I think the other two are very credible tests. But I want to send a message to somebody who I'm prosecuting against right now. So I had a very heated conversation with somebody today. If I tell you if you pass a private poly with a qualified person I respect, 
I'll dismiss a case, and you tell me to go to hell. I'm going to try to fry your client. I'm going to hang them hard. Because to me, if you refuse to take a poly, you're probably guilty. And if you're guilty, and I'm the prosecutor, I want to burn you. But if you pass a polygraph, a good one, I don't want to be the guy prosecuting an innocent person. And this is something many prosecutors have lost sight of, and going on both sides of this thing. What we're supposed to do is be seeking the truth, not a conviction. So I want to get to the truth. Now, I'm not talking about some hacks, because there's a lot of hacks in the polygraph business. And by the way, innocent people can fail polygraphs. But if somebody passes a test with a qualified taker, I don't want to be the person to make that person's life difficult. But if you refuse to take a test, if you get in my face about it, what you're doing is enhancing my theory that you're guilty. And if you are guilty, you got to pay a price for that. Sadly, there's too many innocent people that are charged in the system, and I'm tired of these political prosecutions. And one of the issues with the whole attorney general thing is this. I don't care about a conviction. I care about getting to the truth. And sometimes the truth means you burn someone who's guilty. Sometimes the truth means you dismiss a case because somebody's not guilty. This is not rocket science, guys. And I'm really sick of people getting charged for the wrong reasons. It's bullshit. We need to do better in the criminal justice system. We're seeking the truth. And in that segue, when we talk about the truth, it leads us to our topic of religion and politics. And let me start with this. If religion works for you, I think it's a beautiful thing. I really do. But one of the reasons people ask me to talk about these two things is because these are two things that we're not supposed to talk about, right? What's the old saying? You don't talk about religion or politics. So let's contradict that. And I think with religion, people are looking for peace and freedom. And if you get that going to church, I applaud you for it. But I'm going to tell you why I'm not religious today. And I feel like I'm spiritual, but I also feel religion is a wonderful thing if it works for you. It doesn't work for anybody, everybody. And there's been times in my life when I've sought religion. And it started... Back in Ducktown. When you grow up in a poor and violent area, surprisingly, religion is at the forefront of things. And I've often found people who have suffered the most to believe in religion the most. You know, and as far as the concept of God and all that, I do believe in God. I do believe in the afterlife. But I also don't believe that we make good choices to get a reward at the end of the day. I believe we're reunited with our animals at the end of the day. I do believe there's a heaven. I do believe there's a hell. I do believe there's a purgatory. But I'm not sure we're being graded constantly on our current decisions 
and growing up a very strong Catholic, um, we were always taught, it was like drilled into us, that we have to live a good life to be rewarded in the afterlife. And I found it funny that so many of the people that stressed that were some of the worst people you can imagine. Now, there were amazing people, and there were what I would call evil people that were united in the guise of strong religious beliefs. My Aunt Mare was one of the best people I ever knew. And I'm biased when I say that, but I mean, I owe my aunt everything. But to her, religion was such a critical thing. I mean, I was an altar boy until I was a sophomore in high school. I was a rectory sitter. And those of you in Jersey know what that means. You answered the phones in the rectory. Religion was a vital part of my life. It was something that was huge. And growing up in Ducktown, St. Michael's Church was always the place Italians used to go. And in the 80s, if you were an Italian from Ventnor or Margate or Brigantine or Lake City, you went to St. Michael's, things changed. St. Michael's school shut down. And St. Michael's was kind of the Italian church and Star of the Sea was the Irish church. And then we went to St. James. And St. James and Ventnor, where I went to school and where I was the altar boy, that was the ultimate Irish church. And what's up, Amber? And I will tell you... What I found odd about religion from the earliest of ages was the segregation within the faith. Um, at St. James, you were segregated. When I say you were segregated, let me break a few things down. You were segregated upon who was Irish versus who was Italian versus who was Polish versus who was a minority. Uh, I remember Father Solvi used to joke around and call me Amadego, which is a very insulting term to Italians. Okay. Weird thing coming from your picture of religion, and we'll get more into Father Solvi a little bit later. He deserves his own blog. That's another time. But it was also based on economics. The ones who gave the most to the church were the ones that were deemed to be the chosen people. And I found that really odd. And my family, who was suffering so much economically during this time period, always gave a lot of money to the church. And I was always taught to give the beggars. Till this day, if I see a homeless person on the street, I'll give them a dollar or two. But the church used to say, and I'm only speaking from Father Sullivan and St. James. Hey, Jim, Merry Christmas, brother. You know, why are you giving that money to the beggar when you should be giving the money to the church? And I found that really odd. And I said to Father Sullivan once when money was tight, if it comes down to the church and my animals, I will support my animals over the church. And he told me I wasn't a good Christian for that. It was confusing to me, the whole thing. I mean, here you are, you're an altar boy, and I was altar boy six, seven days a week. I used to take a bus home after Sunday night mass and put my life in jeopardy in the guise of what God would want to do. I was giving money to the church. I was working for the church. I was, everything was centered around the Catholic faith. 
And one of the things the Catholics don't like is when you question things. I'm going back to eighth grade right now. Remember Linda McDevitt, who I don't like. I know you stalk my profile sometimes. I think Linda McDevitt's a horrible person. I think she was a horrible teacher. She was the eighth grade teacher. And she was somebody who had like this little bit of power at St. James because she was the eighth grade teacher. And we had religion class. And McDevitt was talking about how Martin Luther was a bad person. For those of you who don't know, Martin Luther is the man that started the Lutheran church. But before he did so, he was a strong Catholic. And he saw the leaders of the Catholic church doing things that he didn't approve of, things that were against their creed. So what he did in a very ballsy move is he posted everything that he felt was wrong and how he had to change as a team. And he tried to talk to people before it got to that point. And eventually he left and started the Lutheran faith. So Linda McDevitt was saying how Martin Luther was this horrible person, how he turned his back on the Catholic faith. And I raised my hand in class and I said, hey, it sounds like he didn't agree with certain things and he voiced his opinion. And I was told I wasn't a good Catholic. I was always going to burn in hell. And things like that really became confusing to me. Um, I didn't understand the caste system of the Catholic faith. And I didn't understand Father Sullivan in general. And let me just say, Father Sullivan was my picture of Catholicism. Back home, the main priest, any priest, but especially the Monsignor, the pastor, that was the guy. That was the one people looked to, people admired. And we learn later in time, Father Saul was a child molester. And I think good Catholic priests get a really raw deal on this because they get stereotyped. But when Father Sullivan um, got caught up in the system, what the Catholics did was instead of getting rid of him, they moved them. And they moved him from a parish with a group of children to another parish with a group of children. I mean, and there was a new chance for pedophilia, and I didn't know it at the time. And he was one of the first cases I took on a pro bono basis when they tried to kill his pension. <clears throat> and I could go on and on about Sullivan. I was always longing for acceptance from Father Sullivan, and that was learned behavior. You know, because the priest was such a critical aspect of your youth. And Father Sullivan and Father D'Amico, and you know, if you're South Jersey, you know those names very well. These were people that did a lot of bad things. But they were also very knowledgeable in the Bible. And deemed very good Catholics, other than their indiscretions. And the whole thing kind of confused me. And when I look back on religion right now, you know, and the Bobby Reyes case was such an eye-opener for me. Because I saw Sarah and Jose lose their son. 
And I don't think Bobby Reyes would have been treated that way if he was a child of Ann Arbor. I think social economics played a role in things, and I'll stand by that. And I don't care if U of M's got a problem with me. I really don't. But I saw these people that were so religious, and they turned to God, and I admire that so much. Because here they lost their child, and um, they just love God so much, and they're spiritual, and they're religious, and I think that's a beautiful thing that works for you. I could just tell you that religion has, I've lost any interest in being religious anymore. And with a child now, you know, Max will be raised Jewish and Kara's Jewish. And I, they seem happy. I don't really know how I feel about that, but somebody said to me, is your kid going to be raised Catholic? And I jokingly said, no, I love him. I wouldn't do that to him. And I know that came off as harsh. I do think during those trying times, religion served a role. I remember praying every night to get out of the ghetto and to be safe for my family and my animals. And I mean, there's one story that has stuck with me when it comes to the concept of religion. And it was a story that just always got to me, you know? It was just something that, it stuck in my heart, and it stuck in my soul, and I could never get past it. And here I am today, and I'm still talking about this, but I was 14 years old, and there was this kid. Let's just call him Adam. And Adam was a good kid, but he was battling the temptations and the concepts of the inner city. He was trying to do the right thing. He had a part-time job. And he was doing good in school. And he was playing sports. And <clears throat> with Adam, you saw sort of a way out. And one day, we're in the locker room. And um, somebody stole his black jacket. And this was a black, it was a black leather jacket that he had saved up money for. And I saw who stole it. And there were several of us that saw who stole his jacket. And Adam comes in. And he's like, almost in tears. And this was a big look. Because when you're a kid, he was actually a Virginia Avenue kid. And Atlantic City was different, you know. There was Ducktown where we came from, which was bad. But Virginia Avenue Courts, Stanley Holmes Village, Back Maryland, they were worse. And here's this kid from the third layer of hell. And he's about to cry in front of guys in a locker room. Because somebody stole his jacket. And he turned to us. And he said, do you guys know what happened to my jacket? And I kept my mouth shut. And here's why. Where I'm from, if you rat or you snitch, you go down. And it bothered me so much because I wanted to help this kid, but I couldn't because I'm going to tell you right now, the person that stole the jacket, if I would have revealed to Adam who did it, they might have killed or raped me. They might have killed my animals. 
they might have put a Molotov cocktail through my family's home. And I got in that mindset where, you know what, I feel bad for Adam, but I don't know what could happen to my loved ones, and i got to keep my mouth shut, it's none of my business. And that Saturday, I was working at the directory, and I turned to Father Sullivan, and I told him what happened, and I was very distraught about this, and I said, Sully, um, they stole Adam's jacket, and I was concerned what could happen to me, and I wanted to tell him the truth, but I was scared for my family, scared for myself. And he looked at me, and he said, well, if you were a good Catholic, you would have done the right thing. Apparently you have a lot to learn about being a man. Actually, you piece of shit, when I've been beaten down by so many people and stabbed and shot at and brutalized, and I made out a goddamn ghetto, and I gave up baseball, and I worked my ass off to get my family at home, I was more of a man at 14 than Father Sullivan was at his death. But you don't know that at the time. And when Sully said I was a bad Catholic, because I didn't put my family in risk, that hurt. And the one thing about the Catholic faith that always got to me was this layer of guilt. And it wasn't just a layer, it was layers upon layers of guilt. It was... You have to do the right thing. I don't necessarily have to do that. And I want to determine who what the right thing is. <clears throat> and if you question me about that, you're being a bad person. It's a lot of shit to deal with at 14 years old. Hell, a lot of shit to deal with in your 40s. <sighs> and I looked at it, and you realize with this man, you just couldn't win. Because you weren't part of that top layer of the caste system. And my aunt was a sad person. My mom was a sad person. I loved them so much. I missed them every day. But throughout their sadness, they were always very religious. And, you know, and the Catholic faith used to tell them it was their fault for their shortcomings in life. Well, no, it wasn't really. It wasn't their fault that their mother died. It wasn't my mom's fault that her grandmother died when mom was 11 years old in her arms with cancer in the living room. That wasn't mom's fault. It wasn't like if she prayed enough, grandma would have lived. And things like that really have always bothered me. And I go out of my way not to bash the Catholic faith. Because I have so much, my closest friends in the world, people I love and admire, are very strong Catholics. And if it works for them, I'm happy for them. But I can't embrace some of the stuff I've seen and not be deemed a hypocrite. You know, we all make mistakes in life. We all have our flaws. We all have our issues. And I think you can have a relationship with God without having a relationship with organized religion. And I guess I'm still a Catholic, but I'm not really practicing. And I give you a host of reasons why I'm not practicing. But I also know 
going back to the attorney general thing, one of the things that would work against me is I'm not big into organized religion. I'm just not feeling it. Um, I think we lead a good life because that's what we're supposed to do. I don't think we do it because there's some great reward at the end. And some of the worst people I've ever met in my life are some of the most religious people. And some of the best people I've ever known are people that will not step foot in church. So I guess at the end of the day, and I'm not going to talk about politics, I will pick it up another time because I'm already on 23 minutes and it's Saturday and you guys have heard enough of me. I think you gotta do what works for you. And if you're down and out, and you're at that point of low, going to church cures that for you, helps you get you through the day, then you should do it. But I don't think you should force it down someone's throat who does not have that same faith, who's not filled with that joy. I wish the religion that my Aunt Mare experienced was what I felt. But it's just not there. And I do feel giving money to a beggar is more important than giving money to a religious palace. I do feel giving money to animal shelters goes further than giving money in the collection basket at church. I do feel that sometimes people think they could do whatever the hell they want and if they're religious, that's fine. That's my thoughts. That's some of the things from Ducktown. And some of the worst people, and I'm selling a broken record here, but the belief was you could do anything you wanted. You went to church on Sunday, you were good endorse that but what I can endorse is if you get that special feeling going into the religious home the call to home if you feel good about that if it makes you feel good and that the people you love around you it brings you guys close together then do it but you gotta remember something people are going through a lot of stuff and not everybody can be cured by going into a place of worship. And you never really know what's going on inside somebody's head. You just don't. So that's where I'm at with my views on religion going back to Ducktown. Politics is a whole different animal. We'll cover that soon. But I realized putting religious, religion and politics into one blog... You guys don't need to hear me talk for an hour. Let me tell you about one of the weirdest Thanksgivings I ever had. So, there was a guy in law school. I'm going to change names, okay? Just call him Greg. Greg was an asshole. This guy and I didn't get along. And he had this girlfriend. We'll just call her Tara. And this guy and I, we like played softball. We were like the quote-unquote jocks by law school standards. But we could hold a ball. You know, and we just didn't hit it off. And he was always competing with me in class. We were always talking shit to each other. They had this auction 
a charity auction where all these girls would be in bed on for a date. So I said to my Uncle Sam, who was a great man, I said, ah, I want to stick it up this guy's ass. I'm sick of Greg. He goes, okay, at the auction. He goes, how much can you afford? I don't know, like 100 bucks. I didn't have any money back then. He goes, but can you afford 101? Oh, where are you going with this, Uncle Sam? He goes, so let me tell you something. This is a lesson I learned in life. People have this state of mind, right? And $100 would be their limit. But if you bid 101 for like a parking spot or something, you would get it. In their mind, they couldn't do it. So if you bid 101, I'd win this girl at the auction. So we're bidding against each other. He goes, $89. And I come in, 101 And you see, like, they're all handcuffed. Like, what do I do? And I win the bid. Now, I'm calling my Uncle Sam. I'm so proud. I won the bid. I won the date with this girl. I don't want to take her. I was just going to stick up this guy's ass. I didn't like him. She's pissed off at Greg. So she says to me, I want to make this worth your while. <laughs> okay. She says, I'm going to cook you Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> oh, all right. Now I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, Thanksgiving dinner sounds good. I can't cook. She says, all you have to do is go buy the turkey. Now, this is what I first learned is the difference between frozen turkeys and fresh turkeys. So I go to Myers. And I buy this big frozen turkey. And I put it in my freezer. I take all the other stuff out of the freezer. And I'm thinking, oh, great. When they come by, she'll cook it. So I think we're just sitting there frozen for two days, right? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with that. Should have went the other way on that. Left it out for two days. So she comes by, and we're inviting some people over. And she invites him. And I want him being invited because I want to stick up this guy's ass. That your girl's cooking me dinner. She comes over she goes, what am I supposed to do with this thing? Like, well, cook it right. <laughs> this thing's like frozen and thawed. You can't do anything with it. So these people, they all start coming over and are counting on this dinner. I don't know what to do. So I run out to Boston Chicken and I'm like, Boston work. I'm getting a bunch of chickens and mashed potatoes. <laughs> like, chicken's just as good, right? <laughs> so these people, hey, Amber, all these weirdos. And this was a weird group. This was truly my dinner with schmucks. Mm -hmm. I don't like any of these people today. I know some of them. I don't know some of them anymore. They all come in. And I'm going to tell you what they were then, where they're at now, and what they brought to the event. We'll start with all these fake names, because I won't give real names. They had to bring a dish. To they had to bring a dish. Right. Twen, who is now doing contract law in New Jersey. She brought something like calamari and it was breaded weird. It was like floating in a dish. Mm. Back then, she was an academic. Today, she's just doing some contract work. Jeff. Jeff was a guy that said to me he wanted to be a court-appointed lawyer in Lansing. And he wanted to do this because he said all he got to do is show up. <laughs> That's all I gotta do. <laughs> and today he is a court appointed lawyer in Lansing doing a shit job for people. That's not his fault. <laughs> he just shows up. He, he just shows up. He <laughs> actually he comes to the party drunk with a bunch of chicken nuggets. Don't ask me why he brought chicken nuggets, right? And he says Are they frozen? 
<laughs> no, no, no. They weren't frozen. Eric Dahl, he got like up to 20 pieces. <laughs> so Jeff said to me, if you own two suits and you show up, you can make it in quarter point at work in Lansing. And he, and, and he was real cocky. And I own two suits. <laughs> Gotta set the bar high. One suit, yeah, that's too low. <laughs> Two suits, that's that's the way to go. Tina. <laughs> Tina was from Texas. And Tina was talking a lot of shit. I'm gonna bring home a local dish for you people. I'm like, alright, what do you bring from Texas? She brings over like a pot of New England clam chowder. <laughs> <laughs> So, I don't know what's going on here. Tina got her MRS. She's married now, doesn't practice law. Oh. <laughs> Who are we to criticize? Joe, Terry, and Angie were three different prosecutors I know. And they all come together. And there was a lot of sexual tension with these three. Like, you didn't know who was really with who. Then you realized nobody really wanted to be with any of them. <laughs> they all brought over, over these boxes of Zinfandel. Now, interesting enough, some of the other people trying to drink the Zinfandel, they got really pissed off. These are our Zinfandels. Oh, 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 it wasn't to share. And these people, like, they were drinking these Zinfandels like crazy. And, um, you know. Marky brought over a box of macaroni and cheese that was not cooked. <laughs> I got your macaroni and cheese. And she throws it out there, right? Brad brought over a thing of bread. Like Wonder Bread. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, well... You're never going to have enough bread. <laughs> he drops the bread down. All right. Rachel was an ex of mine. And Brad invited her because Brad was trying to get with Rachel. Rachel was a med student at MSU. Rachel came to the party. Said, I'm not bringing anything. And she was announcing. Like, she's with everybody. She's drinking her Zinfandel. I'm not bringing anything. <sighs> Then Teresa. Teresa brought brownies with pot. Oh, wow. <laughs> and she brought... She brought a ton of brownies. Like, this girl baked her heart out and put pot in all them. And I, I go to reach for a brownie, right? Now, you know me, I'm straight edge. I don't I've even drank in my life. Like, yeah, I'm going to have a brownie. She goes, no, 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 you don't want that. <laughs> like, I didn't. But all these geeks... They're eating these brownies like there's no tomorrow, right? So things are getting weird. The first weird thing that happens is my toilet gets clogged. <laughs> now, we don't know who clogged it, but I know my cats had a litter box near the toilet, right? And Bianca and Winston looking at me with a really strange look, like almost nodding her head, hey, Dad, go check the toilet out. I go in there, and this thing is like, it's clogged up. And if you know the Village Green Maintenance Crew of 2005, they weren't coming out on Thanksgiving to help me out on this situation. 
So I'm yelling with a plunger at everyone in this room, who the hell clogged my toilet? Nobody's answering. As these brownies are being digested, these people start screaming about case mold to each other. It is this horrible debate about proximate causation versus actual causation. My hairy hand is about that. <laughs> then the karaoke starts. <laughs> and the tears. Because people are now drunk and high at my little one-bedroom apartment in Village Green with a clogged toilet, a frozen turkey, one chicken from Boston Market, Wonder Bread, <laughs> pox wine. And let me tell you something, guys. When people are drunk, the truth comes out. Oh, my God. And weird things really start happening. And Greg, who was really upset that I had one tower at the auction, he starts screaming at me. You did this to get even with me. He goes, you're trying to stick it up my ass, or you're trying to stick it up her ass. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, listen, dude. I'm not trying to stick it up anybody's ass. And my ex-girlfriend, Rachel, she goes, oh, I know that's right! <laughs> <laughs> oh, my like, Jesus Christ! <laughs> and it was just a really weird evening. Finally, when these drunken high individuals left... And they took the frozen turkey with them. Like, a couple yeah. of them did. I mean, you had to go! I don't know. It was truly... When I think of dinner with schmucks, Matt and I, Matt can contest this, we've often considered throwing a dinner for people and inviting them not showing up <laughs> just to see what the communication would be like. So dinner with schmucks stuck with me. And I feel like I was a pioneer in this. Because this was 2005 before the movie came out. <laughs> All right. I'll <laughs> go uh, Amadeo. Have a good holiday, guys. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.